9, and, and you can follow along in your bulletin uh, or, or in, in a Bible if you have it in front of you. Matthew 19, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we open our hearts to your word now. A word that um, is both a challenge, a word that cuts us, but also a word that comforts and heals us. And so we pray as we commit our minds and commit our lives to the words of Jesus, that you would send your spirit Um, to guide us into all truth. And Lord, I know that these verses touch uh, many of the lives present here. And so we pray that uh, we need your presence as we study this. And so we trust in you. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your love and your grace um, that you would now speak to us and address us as your children. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This morning, our topic is marriage and divorce, which some of you might say that's an odd selection for Mother's Day uh, sermon. And um, I'll just tell you the reason why that is. It wasn't the selection, but one of the things we do in our church is we just go right through books of the Bible and we take whatever passage is next. And whatever's there, that's what we're talking about. And it just turned out this is where we are today is in Matthew 19 and Jesus teaching and um, I just want to you know I want to say from the outset that I know that uh, the topics in here particularly divorce is a sensitive topic uh, for many of you um, whether you've been through a divorce yourself uh, or there's divorce in your family and um, and you know it's it might be kind of shocking to have Jesus teaching on such a complex subject be four verses long. Which you say, that's all you're going to say about it? I mean, how can you address something so huge with just four verses? And, you know, I think part of the answer to that is, you know, a couple of weeks ago we looked at the passage right before this, which was actually a, a, a lengthy parable about forgiveness and reconciliation. And one thing you could say is, well, Jesus has all kinds of teaching about relationships and people. If you bring those teachings into marriage, actually it answers a lot of the questions that uh, bring up problems in marriage. But I also think that as you ask questions about, about marriage and divorce, 
there are certain fundamentals. Before you get into the complexity, you need to kind of answer the questions of the fundamentals first. And there are certain fundamentals that God has given us about, about our marriage relationships and what he intends with them. And so it's those fundamentals, those basic things that Jesus is laying out for us in this, in this passage. And, um, and so I just want to say that um, though as, as we look at this passage, and we're going to insist on that we don't shy away from the Bible's teaching, even about sensitive subjects. We also recognize that the, um, you know, the pain and the hurt that, that goes along with divorce, or, or maybe even shame, we need to recognize at the outset that, that the sins that go along with marriage are not unpardonable sins. There is grace for us. As, as we repent and turn to the Lord, there is grace. And because of God's immense kindness and grace to sinners, that he welcomes them to come, uh, welcomes us to come, it allows us to open our hearts and soften our hearts to be challenged by Jesus' teaching. And so it's trusting in God's grace that we open ourselves now uh, to what, what Jesus has to teach us. And so uh, this morning, I just want to answer three simple questions. What is Jesus' view of marriage? What is Jesus' view of divorce? And what is Jesus' view of us? Three things. His view of marriage, view of divorce, and therefore, in light of those things, what is his view of us? So the first, um, and, and by the way, you know, I want to say one last comment. Um, you know, some of you might feel like, well, you know, I'm not married. Uh, what does this have to speak to me? Next week, Jesus is going to teach us about singleness. And actually, Jesus was a single man. And uh, apparently... Jesus, who had the most fulfilling life that anyone ever lived in the history of the world, was a single person. So he has interesting things to, to tell us about singleness. We're going to look at that next week. This week, though, we're talking about marriage. And so three questions. And the first is this. How does Jesus view marriage? Crucial, important question. And uh, we see in these passages that Jesus' view of marriage actually came from the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Look at what it says in verse 3. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So for Jesus, actually, he's quoting both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he says the meaning of marriage actually comes from the one who created marriage, who, marriage who created us. If you want to understand it, you need to look back to those early passages, and when you do, you find two things that we learn about marriage. Is that marriage, according to the Bible, is a picture and marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a picture and marriage is a covenant. And you see that there, verse 4. First, marriage is a picture. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that comes from a verse in Genesis chapter 1 where it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. And what the beginning of Genesis says is what it means to be human is that you're like, you're like this statue, a living, breathing, moving, playing, creating statue of God. That you are a picture of, to the world of what God is like. That's what it means to be human. And, but tied into that, there's the maleness and femaleness together at least plays some role in the part of reflecting to the world, being a picture to the world of who God is and what he's like. And... Um, 
And so the question is, what do those things picture about God? And well, he quotes, he quotes Genesis 1 first, and then he quotes Genesis 2 in verse 5. This is what he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's an amazing thing the Bible teaches, that when you get married, two lives come together or united in such a way like they're one body. You know, and you think of how a body is, you know, all the parts of the body share their life together. You know, they share their blood and share the oxygen and all the organs kind of, you know, function to help the other organs and serve the other organs. And that's what's happening when two people come to, together in marriage is their whole lives become shared and united. And so they share their life, their thoughts, their future, their plans, their money, their home, their schedule, their time, all these things become a shared life. And so, you know, it's very, you know if, if two people are getting married and, and one of them, is, you know, is quite wealthy, and all of a sudden they come together, the other person, their spouse, now all of a sudden becomes quite wealthy as well because their wealth is shared. One, one of them has quite a lot of debt. Now all of a sudden the other one is going to share that debt and you take it on and it becomes a shared life that comes together. And this is a profound thing, but what does that teach us about God? Shared life. What does that teach us about God? Well, um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul takes the same passage from Genesis 2, and he actually says it's not about marriage. He says it's a mystery, but this is actually speaking about Christ and the church. And the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you come into this community called the church that the Bible describes as the bride of Christ. And when the bride of Christ is united to Jesus so that everything that's true about Jesus, he shares with his bride. So Jesus is the Son of God. He's the beloved Son of God. And when you become a Christian, you become one of God's... He shares that status with us. So we're God's beloved children. And Jesus is filled with the Spirit. And we become filled with the Spirit. And Jesus has eternal life and this share in a, in a world to come where we'll live forever. And we have a share in that world. And, you know, and we're a part of God's family. And he, so he shares everything with us. And we also share everything with Jesus. We have this debt of our sin that he now takes on. Even though he didn't sin and he dies on the cross and takes the burden for us and he actually shares in our sin in that way and that he became sin for us. And so it's this shared life. And what this means is that the meaning of marriage, it is a picture of the ultimate deep reality of the universe. The deep spiritual truths of the universe are being pictured in the union of a man and a wife. Which also says, by the way, for those of you who are married, you are proclaiming to the world something about who God is. If you're selfish, you're telling the world that God is selfish, which is not true. And part of the calling for a Christian is that our marriages preach a true gospel, a, a gospel of sacrificial love. And as we, that's one of the most powerful ways that we preach the gospel to the world and to each other is through the love that we have in a marriage. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it's crucial that at the center of a marriage is Christ. That two people both say, you know, you're not the center of my life. The husband does not say, the wife's not the center of my life. The wife doesn't say to the husband, you're the center of my life. They are both saying that Christ is the center of our life, and that's the very meaning and purpose of our union.
So first, marriage is a picture. But the second thing is also that marriage is a covenant. And you may have noticed that in, in verse 5 there again. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And actually that word hold fast, the Hebrew word for that, is, is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the covenant relationship that God had with his people. It's a covenantal word. Describes a covenantal relationship, which means a word that describes both passion and permanence. So there, there is an emotional, relational aspect going to the relationship, but there's also these boundaries that are binding this relationship together. And so what that tells us, what a covenant relationship is, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can base a marriage on. Right? You can marriage, base a marriage on convenience. You know, our culture does that, that two people, this is going to work out. You know, we could live together and, you know, we could have a couple incomes and we can make things work. And, and that's not a good thing to base a marriage on. That won't work. Or you could say, I'm going to base a marriage on our romantic feelings for one another. But, you know, in a marriage, romantic feelings are sometimes stronger, sometimes not so strong. And if, if your marriage is based on those romantic feelings, they're going to come and go, the marriage will fall apart. Or even if you build a marriage on children, that can often happen, that you have children and we're raising these kids together. You may not, the Lord may not bless you with children. Your children may grow up. And now all of a sudden your house is empty and now you're looking at that other person saying, who are you again? Uh, and, and what the Bible says is you can't build a marriage on any of these things a marriage is built on a vow, on a promise that says, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And what a healthy marriage is, is that both, both husband and wife are finding ways, both verbally and non-verbally, to communicate again and again and again to that person, I will never leave you. 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 And, and you know, so that looks like for a husband who sacrifices for his family and, uh, you know, and, and, and gives up hobbies because he says to his wife, I want to work on our relationship and I want to I spend time with the children and I want to be together and I care about this relationship, that kind of sacrifice. Every time a husband does that, he's saying to his wife, I'll never leave you. And any time a wife, the Bible calls wives to respect their husbands, to submit to them is the language it uses. And when a wife submits to her husband, she is saying to him, I believe in you, I believe in your leadership, I'm behind you, and I love you, and I will never leave you. These are the ways that we communicate that to one another. And just imagine that God would put someone like that in your life and give you that kind of security. I have someone in my life who's going to say, I'll never leave you. And we go out into the world with so much more security and strength. And this is the beautiful thing that God intends us to give us, is that, that, at this, that we would have this intimate relationship that is a very picture of the gospel, and has the security of a vow that the person who's going to see my flaws more than anyone else in the world has pledged to me, I will never leave you. It's amazing. And so, it's only when we understand what God envisions for marriage that we can begin to understand the severity of the Bible's uh, teaching about divorce. And that's the second question that we're going to look at. So that first, uh, what is Jesus' view of marriage is that it is a picture, a picture of the gospel, and that it is a covenant. It's a relationship built on, on a vow, I will never leave you. But the second question is, uh, what is Jesus' view of divorce? And, you know, the Old Testament uh, says in a number of places that you, you know, we should, a man should be faithful to the wife of uh, his youth. And uh, one of the main reasons for that is because... Uh, 
throughout the Old Testament, God is pictured as a husband and Israel is his bride and about his faithfulness to her. And so, you know, again, that the marriage relationship is supposed to be a picture of God's relationship to us. And so naturally, God sees divorce as falling short of um, the ideal for marriage that God lays out in the creation account. And so Jesus says in verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, probably the most important Old Testament passage on divorce comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And actually, the, uh, the Pharisees quote, talk about it in this passage. You see that there in verse 7 where they say, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So he's talking about uh, Deuteronomy 24, which says this, That when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has um, uh, sorry if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and so this is describing that Moses is giving a provision for divorce, and the key word there, he said, is if a man finds some indecency in his wife. Now the key is, what is that referring to? And actually, in the first century, uh, in Jesus' day, there was a big dispute about this verse of what is an indecency, and there were two schools of thought, uh, one Rabbi Shammai and another Rabbi Hillel. And Hillel, who's a more liberal, said, um, any indecency that a man finds his wife is warrant for him to divorce her. So, you, and actually, I think the, the uh, example he uses is that if she burns the toast, like that's sufficient. All right, burnt toast, I'm out of here. And, um, and Shammai, who was the more conservative, said indecency is referring to some kind of nakedness, that uh, there has been some sexual infidelity. And um, what's happening here is Jesus is taking his stand with the more conservative side of that debate. From, his, uh, from the first century. And it's what it says in verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Um, divorce is a serious matter. And though there are times when it should be permitted, it should be very limited in Jesus' view. And C.S. Lewis, in his great introduction to the Christian faith, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter on Christian marriage. And this is what he says about divorce, which I think is really powerful. He says, Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. Churches all agree with one another about marriage in a great deal more than any of them agrees with the outside world. I mean, they all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all agree with, what they all disagree with, is the modern view that it is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another, or when either of them falls in love with someone else. 
Let me just say, I know that for some of you, whether you've been through a divorce or maybe you've had parents who are divorced, you know what Lewis is talking about, that a divorce is not like people rearranging their relationships. It's like having your legs cut off. Um, uh, not only does divorce fall short of the ideal for marriage that God gave in creation, it does a tremendous amount of damage to the people who are involved. They do not leave it unscarred. The children do not leave it unscarred. The couple does not leave it unscarred. And um, anyone who's been through that knows how destructive and painful it is. And so the question is, is it ever appropriate then for a Christian to get divorced? Well, historically, the church has said there's two grounds for divorce. The first comes in Matthew 5 and here in Matthew 19, that one ground for divorce is uh, sexual infidelity. Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus says that if your spouse uh, commit, uh, is unfaithful, you are free to divorce. Now the fact is, among Christians, we have been forgiven a tremendous amount of sin in our lives. And so there's many Christian marriages that have had unfaithfulness in them, and the marriage has remained intact because the other spouse says, you know what, I've been forgiven so deeply and the other person is repentant, it doesn't have to result in the divorce. But Jesus says that that is a ground for divorce. The second ground for divorce comes from 1 Corinthians 7, and um, where Paul deals with the situation where um, a Christian is married to, someone becomes a Christian, and they're married to a non-Christian. And the non-Christian says, I'm not willing to be married to you if you're a Christian. And so you either have to choose between being a Christian or staying married. And Paul says, if that's the case, you can let the person go. This is called desertion. If they've deserted you as a Christian, you are free to divorce them. These are the two grounds for divorce. And the operating assumption is that in a marriage, you don't use the D word. You don't talk about divorce. You don't have a fight and say, well, maybe this is going to divorce. No, that's off the table. That's not how you resolve the conflicts. And the reason for this, God has intended it that way, is he knows you're going to have conflict. He knows the person you are going to get most angry with in your life is your spouse. And it is in that conflict that he's going to shape, form Christ in you. That you're going to be transformed. You're going to learn what love and forgiveness and patience and service are. And, um, and so one of the things... This tells us, as a congregation, is we have to be very careful in how we're counseling one another um, when people are in difficult marriages. Um, you know, actually, there's a, a gal who's a close family friend of ours who uh, had been a, a therapist for many years. She's not a Christian in Seattle. And when I was first became a pastor, she told me, she said, you know, don't ever tell someone that they should get a divorce. That's not your decision. That's their decision. And because she said she was counseling people early on in her practice, and, uh, and the people were in marriages that she thought, how can you live like that? I mean, these, you just hate each other, and it's just such a terrible environment. You need to get out of there. And so the people listened to her and got divorced. And she said, I found out I was wrong. It was much harder after having left and being alone. And, and I don't know if they should have left. And so we should be very counsel, uh, very slow because you might think someone's in a very terrible situation, 
But you don't know necessarily whether they should stay or, or whether they should leave. And another side of that is because also, often we don't know the other side of the story. Actually, there was a, I heard a pastor tell a story about um, a woman who had come to him and said, you know, I need to talk to you about my husband. He's being physically aggressive with me. He's pinned me on the ground, and he's much stronger than I am. And the pastor said, oh, man, this is no good. And so he goes and he confronts the man about it. And he said, oh, well... Did she mention she was trying to attack me with a steak knife when I pinned her on the ground? The pastor said, she left that, the steak knife out of the story. Uh, you know, and so there was obviously a whole other side of the story. That's why he was pinning her down. She was trying to kill him. And, uh, and so that's an important thing. In any relationship, you have to hear both sides of the story as we're counseling one another. But again, the operating assumption in marriage must be that divorce is not an option. Now, I know that probably all of you are thinking then, what about abuse? Okay, if those are the two uh, grounds for divorce is uh, sexual infidelity or, uh, or desertion, what about abuse? And, um, you know, it's interesting how the Bible talks about divorce because if you go to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke and you read Jesus' sayings there, they don't say anything about sexual immorality. This is what it says in, in uh, Mark 10. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There's nothing about sexual immorality. So if you just had those verses, you would think Jesus says, there's no way you can get divorced. You can never get divorced. But then you come to, uh, to Matthew 19 and Jesus says, well, except in the case of sexual immorality. And he's like, you know, everyone knows in the case of sexual immorality you can get divorced. That's not even a question. So he kind of takes that for granted. And so one verse, it seems like you can never have divorce. Now you have this verse that says, oh, there's one case. But then you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul again says, if you're married to a non-Christian, you have to decide between being a Christian and being married. He says, you can get divorced there. And it's like, well, you know, obviously you don't not become a Christian to stay married. And so here's another case that he's taken for granted. And so the question is, are there other situations that the Bible thinks we should say, obviously, you should not require someone to stay in this situation? Well, I, first of all, we should take seriously that the historical teaching of the church is that these are the two grounds for divorce, is de desertion and... Uh, uh, and sexual morality. But you'll note in this passage that Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife. The scene here is a man who's leaving a woman. And you know, in the ancient world, a woman who, was who had been married and was left without a husband was one of the most vulnerable people in society. And so when Jesus says to men, you do not leave that woman alone. It is a question of justice. It is a matter of protecting the weak. That's Jesus' burden in this passage, is the, the woman's getting the bad end of the deal, which, by the way, is true in our culture as well. If there's a divorce, it's generally the woman who gets the bad end of that deal. And so Jesus is defending the weak here. And so, when we come to the question of abuse and say, well, what would Jesus think about that? Still to this day, uh, uh, women are victims of abuse far more than men. Um, women accounted for 85% of the victims of intimate partner violence, while men for only 15%. So the, the question of the protection of women 
is absolutely at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And so if someone is in a situation that is threatening, that there is violence, that they need to be protected from, as a church, we absolutely, of course, are going to protect someone from that situation and give them a way out. And, of course, if, uh, if it, the law is being broken, the, the authorities should be notified as well. That should be our principle as a church. But there's a caveat that has to go with that because one of the major questions is, what is abuse? Because more and more, there's all kinds of abuse. Right? There's physical abuse. There's emotional abuse. There's verbal abuse. And, you know, in our marriage, it is your spouse that you know how to hurt more than anyone else in your life. And actually, for most people who are married, the things that they will say that they will be the most ashamed of in their life, they will likely say to their spouse or to someone in their family. And it's because we know that they're not leaving. We know that we have this marriage covenant, that that, um, we take the person for granted. And so we are going to do profound hurt to one another in our marriage, and God knows that. And Jesus is keeping us in that marriage. And so we have to ask the question, you know, when we're hearing about verbal or emotional abuse, how do I judge how severe this is? And one of the things that we have to remember is that this passage is not given to individuals. This passage is said to a community. And when we get married, one of the reasons we don't get married privately, just by ourselves, but we get married in front of witnesses, and you know, we have a pastor there, is what we're saying is that my marriage is going to need a community around it. I'm going to need people speaking into my marriage. I'm going to need people to know what's happening in my marriage if we're going to make it. And so when these questions of abuse come out, we have to come to our church community, come to church leaders, and say, I need counsel about this. Which also means it's important for us as a church that we have church leaders that we trust. You know, we're talking about uh, Daniel, interviewing Daniel to be an associate pastor in this church. We have two men that are in training to be elders in our, in our church. And as we go through those, those periods of uh, electing uh, officers to our church, these are people who are going to be entrusted with these kinds of decisions. And they need to be people that are wise, humble, Godly, loving, gentle, and that we would trust even these deep decisions with. So this, this whole question is incredibly complex. Jesus knows that. But for the vast majority of, of our marriage situations, these words are a guide to us. And so this leads to the last question that I want to just speak to is, we know what Jesus' view of marriage is and what his view is of divorce How does Jesus view us, then, in light of this? Well, let me just speak to those of you, first of all, who are married. And I want to tell you that um, God's commandments, he gives us hard commandments. And for some of you, this may be a hard commandment. Say, my marriage is going to be hard to stay in. God's commandments are always for your good. It's because he loves you. He does not want you to be miserable. He's not just like, I want people in miserable marriages their whole lives. That's not what he wants. His commandments are always good. And so we have to ask the question, how's the, where is the goodness in this? If you're in a really difficult marriage, what is, where's the goodness in this? And you know, there's a guy named David Schnark who's a, um, a marriage and sex therapist. He's not a believer. Who, uh, he wrote a book called Passionate Marriage that I read. It's a really fascinating book where he talks about um, relational maturity, actually, and also sexual maturity, demands 
um, committed relationships. And his definition of committed relationships is almost to the level of Jesus here. A very high level of commitment. You don't leave this marriage, especially when it gets hard. And I put a quote for you. If you turn to page three in your bulletin, I, I put a quote from his book where he talks about how marriage is meant to mature us and so the conflict and struggles that we have in our marriage are actually perfectly designed for you. This is what he said. It says, Our self-made crises are custom-tailored. That's a profound thought. The arguments that you're having in your marriage are custom-tailored for you. painstakingly crafted and always fit perfectly. We construct emotional knots until eventually we are willing to go through them. We sometimes create situations that ask us to risk our marriage in order to receive its bounty. Approached in this light, committed relationships become epic dramas of heroism rather than soap operas. Marriage is an epic drama of heroism. It takes courage. It takes perseverance. And what he says is that, through his decades of doing counseling, is that when um, couples come in to see him and they're the most exasperated, their marriage seems so dark, so tense, both these people just say, I hate you. I can hardly even stand to hear your voice anymore. He says that if that couple will be patient and humble and teachable, and, and I would add that if they put their identity not in their spouse but in the Lord, their pledge is to follow the Lord and not to find their identity in their spouse. He says that those couples that are on the brink of just falling apart are actually on the brink of their deepest intimacy. Because the things that you fight the most aggressively for are the things that are at the core of your soul. That's why you're fighting so hard for them. That's why you're so angry because there's something deep inside of you that you really cherish and that you really want and that actually your spouse doesn't even know about and that you don't even know about. And the way that it comes to the surface, those things that you cherish most, is through that conflict. And the only way that process is going to happen is if you don't run away from the marriage. And you walk through it and you stay in it and you persevere. And what happens is your capacity for joy and for love and for intimacy expands through the process. It's like a furnace that's refining you. It is an incredibly beautiful thing. Jesus' words in this passage are for your good. Trust him. Now let me lastly just speak to those of you who've been in marriages and are divorced or have been divorced. I know that some of the things in here may be unsettling for you, challenging, and it's okay that you might walk away from this sermon saying, I might need to have some conversations with some people in my life. They could be children. It could be uh, someone else in your family. It could be a spouse that you're divorced from. This is an invitation to repentance and to receive God's grace, and we repent by acknowledging our sin and then receiving God's grace. But what we also need to know is that divorce is not an unpardonable sin. As severe as, as, as the Bible's teaching is on it, it's not unpardonable. And actually, one of the greatest stories in the Bible is in John chapter 4 where Jesus goes and meets this woman at a well who's been an outcast from her community. And he meets her, and this is a woman who's been uh, married five times and now is living with a man who's not her husband. And she has no friends. 
And Jesus goes through it and he offers her living water. And he says, come and drink from the living water and the grace that I will give you. And he has this great conversation, this exchange from her. And she goes back to her town and she goes and tells the whole town about, come and meet this man who told me everything I, told me everything I ever did, who knows me and didn't run away from me, but loved me. Jesus will do that for you as well. If you go to him with a humble and tender spirit, he will love even the most broken. And it's that same Jesus that gives us these challenging words this morning. Let's pray together.